<laughs> You're revealing your age, Jim. No, just my knowledge. <laughs> just your knowledge, okay. All right, okay. So... Okay, so we are in Genesis 4. Last week we started in the first of the chapter. And uh, it helped if I got over to Genesis rather than Exodus. And uh, we're talking about the story of Cain and Abel. And then uh, today we're going to go on and talk more about Cain. Uh, let's, let's, read, uh, let's read the whole chapter just to get the whole story. And then we'll review a little bit what we talked about last week and then go on from there. Now the man, that would be Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and to Erad Erad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, 
Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth, uh, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enish. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Okay? Well, last week we looked at about the first half of the chapter, and... Uh, what do you remember uh, six in your mind that we talked about last week? Okay, and what's the significance of that? Okay. Okay. Why is it important to us to make that distinction in the story? Okay. Okay. The issue really is it's a problem with Cain. It's not a problem with his offering. Remember that the, the both of them brought offerings to the Lord and it says Abel and his offering were regarded and Cain and his offering were not. And the question is, why? And it's not, it was not the offering itself that was not, was not acceptable. Oftentimes people think, well, it's because Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain did not. Uh, but it wasn't a sacrifice. It was an offering. It wasn't, there was no necessity of there being a blood offering uh, because there was, nothing, uh, there was no expiation involved in this at all. There was no cleansing or forgiveness of sins. It was simply a tribute uh, given to God in honor and worship. And, uh, and so there was no real need for, uh, there was no need at all for it to be a blood sacrifice. So it's not an issue of the sacrifice itself of what Abel brought or what Cain brought, but the issue was the man who brought them. What was, what was right or what was wrong about the man who brought them? And what did we learn about that? Why did God regard Abel and his offering and did not regard Cain and his offering? Okay. Okay, it may be, we're not sure, but what one of the factors may be uh it's very clear that that Abel brings really the best, the fattest of the of the flock. Uh there's there's no real indication that Cain brings the best. It doesn't say that he didn't, so uh so we sometimes conclude or we may conclude that in fact he did not bring the best. Uh, because it makes such a point of the fact that Abel did. But aside from that, what's, it, what's the other reason? What's really the main thing that seems to be, uh, or that we know from Scripture, was the dividing line between the In retrospect, it's real easy to see, but when we first addressed yeah. it, I thought, well, it's faith. Yeah. He approached God by faith. Yeah, yeah. And, and Hebrews 11 makes that explicitly clear, that, that Abel brought to God a sacrifice that was pleasing uh, to God because He brought it by faith, and that's why uh, that's the that's the critical issue. And so, so in essence, what we really see is we see two kinds of worship here, with Abel and with Cain. We see we see that kind of worship which Jesus describes as those who worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, Abel comes in spirit and in truth. He worships in faith, and Cain simply comes with this kind of what Jeremiah calls. 
uh, worship that is tradition learned by rote. In other words, he's, he's just going through the motions of the worship for whatever reason. We don't know much about Cain in that regard, so we don't really know why he comes without faith, but he does come without faith, and so he is not regarded and his sacrifice is not regarded. What else did we learn from this lesson? Okay, we talked about that. There's, there's a, a couple possible ways to see that. One is that Cain is, or excuse me, that uh, Eve is, is recognizing that she just got through this with God's help and by God's hand, and, uh, and she's acknowledging that. Uh, the other possibility is that to some degree she's, she's kind of, a, she may be a little boastful of what she's managed to accomplish. She's managed to bring, a, bring forth a son or bring forth a man like God brought forth a man. And so there's a couple possible ways of, uh, of looking at that, and we'll, we'll talk about the, that again a little bit later today. But what else? Anything else we talked about? Well, one commentator I read said that they possibly were twins. Right. Just because of the way the, the phrasing came uh, they could have been twins. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. The conclusion this guy made was it doesn't really seem to make a difference. Yeah. So that was the conclusion. <laughs> yeah, I have heard that, that there's some thought that they could have been twins. The thing I was instructed on, which was you speaking and the Holy Spirit working in my heart, was that whenever Cain brought his sacrifice, he was upset at God because he was doing something out of love and God did not regard it. And I was thinking how often I do that with my wife. And I, I don't realize it at the time, but I'm doing something, I think I'm doing this out of love, and she doesn't respond quote, correctly, and I get upset. And I thought, man, that's exactly what happens. That's a key mm-hmm. indicator. Yeah. If I'm trying to do something out of love, and I get upset with the response, that's an indication, just like with pain, that I'm doing it for the wrong reason. It's yeah. not out of love. Yeah. And, uh, so that's what pain's response was, the direct yeah. lesson you were talking yeah, and, uh, and, and, we, and we talked about that some last week. The, the characteristic of the flesh is when I make an offering to God and it doesn't seem to sway Him or influence Him the way I want it to, then, then the tendency is for me to get angry. And that's a response of the flesh, yeah. And indicates that there was some other motive involved there other than simply the worship and the love of God. Anything else before we go on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, we come to him on his terms. Uh, okay, well, let's kind of pick up the story where we left it off last week. We didn't quite finish everything I wanted to talk about last week, and and, and then go on with the story. We've read, of course, the whole story. Uh, one of the things we kind of rushed through there at the end is is uh, is after. After Cain has brought his offering and it's clear to him that that the offering is is not regarded or not accepted by the Lord, and however that was made manifest to him, however that became obvious to him, of course we don't know for sure. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in in a minute. But but when that becomes clear to him, then he becomes very angry. Okay, and it's clear that that he's headed in a direction that he, that he really had better not go. Okay? And so at that point, the Lord comes and 
tries or attempts to, if I can use those terms in reference to God, attempts to forestall what seems to be inevitably going to follow from, from what's happened here. Is that Cain has brought an offering. He has not brought an offering uh, in faith. He has not brought an offering uh, in, in true worship. And God has not regarded it. So now, in addition to, uh, to a worship that is either superficial or inadequate in some way, he adds to that the sin of, his, of this outrage or this anger. Okay? Of course, we understand that his anger is really directed at God. Whether or not he knew that or not uh, is, is not clear. Oftentimes, uh, I know in my own life, and I've shared this before, that I've been very angry in the past about things, and then I finally realize it's not my situation I'm angry at, or it's not other people I'm angry at, but it's really God that I'm angry at. But the problem is that oftentimes when we're angry with God, eventually that anger gets diverted to what? Pardon? Other people. It gets directed to other people. Okay? And so, so this is what's happened. This anger is building up in Cain. And God comes to Cain and, and calls him on the carpet for his anger. He says, why is your countenance fallen? Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And he's trying to point out to Cain that the problem is not in Cain's circumstances. The problem is not that his sacrifice was not regarded. The problem is that he's not done well. And the, and, and the fallen countenance is not because God hasn't received his sacrifice. It's not because because Abel seems to be the favored son in this situation. Okay, That's not why his countenance has fallen. That's why Cain thinks his countenance has fallen. But God is saying, no, the reason your countenance has fallen is because you've not done well. And if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. And then he makes this very telling remark to him. He says, sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. Okay? And what we see going on in the life of Cain at this point, I think is really instructive to us about the nature of sin, is it's that, if we can use the term, it's that slippery slope of sin. Okay? It started first with just the simple act of superficial worship. And, and then the sin progresses from that to this anger or this rage that he has towards God and ultimately then towards his brother. And, and ultimately, so we see, finally this sin degenerates into this fratricide, to the murder of his own brother. Okay? So, so what we learn about sin is that it can start very simple and very small but it can very quickly lead downhill so that where Cain ended up is not where Cain started. Cain just started by coming and just thinking, well, I can just throw an offering together here and just make an offering and God will be obligated to receive it and all will be... And he comes with this superficial attitude to... How many times have I done that? How many times have you done that? How many times have we got up in the morning and just had a devotional out of... Out of just sheer road, out of sheer habit. You know, how many times have we come to church and we sat in a worship service and we just kind of sat there and we sung the, but you know, our minds are off on the job or on the problems with the family or on what we're going to be doing after church or whatever, and and we're just kind of going through the rote. 
How many, how many times does our pattern of sin just start with a superficial worship? And that's where it started with Cain. But it quickly goes downhill from there. And God calls His attention to that, that He's going downhill and He says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Its desire is to master you, to overcome you. But He says you've got to master it. And, and one of the things that I've discovered in my own experience, and I'm sure you, you've recognized this in your experience too, is, is that when I get on this, this kind of slide of sin, and you know how that works. You, know, you make one little compromise and, and then a little bigger compromise is a little easier to make the next time and then a little bigger compromise. And sin just gains momentum in our lives. You know? It's kind of like a car rolling downhill and you first get it over the crest of the hill and it just starts to creep and it you know and it'd be pretty easy to stop it at that point but as it goes further and faster and it goes steeper down the hill it gets harder and harder to stop okay well that's the way sin is in our lives it begins with just little areas and then the more we tolerate that and permit that the faster and faster it goes and the more downhill we go and it just gains momentum and just becomes like this huge snowball, if you want to use that analogy, of just rolling down the hill and gaining steam. But the thing we learn from God's encounter with Cain is that any point in that process, Cain is still responsible to arrest it. You know, it, it, can, it can happen in our lives where where we just give in to sin so often and so long that eventually we begin to think that it's inevitable. And there's no real point in trying to resist or fight the temptation. But what's clear here in God's injunction to Cain is God still holds him accountable. Even though he is on the threshold of murder, God still holds him accountable and says, you've got to master this thing. Now, how would Cain possibly master this thing that is overtaking his life? Okay, so... Okay. It's the same, it's the same principle. It's the same way that Cain's sacrifice was acceptable and that Cain was acceptable to God, it was by faith. The only way that Cain can master this sin that is crouching at his door is if he comes to God in repentance, if he acknowledges his sin, which is something he refuses to do, if he acknowledges and confesses his sin and he turns to God in faith and he asks for God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's strength and God's power in his life. That's the only way he could do it. Okay. Now, that's not all spelled out for us in the text, of course, uh, but as we go on through Scripture and we study Scripture, we understand that that's what God expects of us. But that at any point in our life, as sin is gaining momentum in our life and is gaining speed and gaining power in our life, at any point in our life, if we are believers, we can turn back to God and master that thing that's seeking to overcome us and destroy us. Okay. Now, there is such a thing 
And we'll get into this when we get into the story of Esau. And, and, and there's some question in my mind. I think maybe Cain eventually reached this point in his life. But there is the point in an unbeliever's life where he can go beyond the point of repentance. And that, as we say, as I say, when we get to studying Esau later in Genesis, we will discover that he gets to a point at which repentance is no longer available to him. But that's, that's an unbeliever. To a believer, of course, that's not a problem. Did you have a question? Yeah, I was just going to point out that with the sin of jealousy uh, is so powerful that it leads to murder. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about all the other sins leading to murder, but jealousy really It's a big one, isn't it? It is. And it oftentimes leads to that very result. Yeah, it oftentimes does. And it, and it tells us why God takes that sin of jealousy so seriously, and we, I think we oftentimes toy with it. That's one of those areas where we kind of make compromises and somebody has a little advantage or you know a little blessing from God a little more than we do and we toy with this thing of jealousy. But we can see from this story exactly how devastating jealousy can become. So, uh, so at any rate, he, he, uh, he's headed down this slippery slope and God, is, God seeks to avert him or divert him from that. Uh, from those consequences, and uh, and of course we know the result that he ignores the Lord and he takes Cain or he goes out in the field with his brother Abel and he murders him, and then and then he has another interaction with God and we're, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that about this interaction with God that he had, uh, what was the nature of that, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But he has another interaction with God, and God at this point now calls him into account for the murder of his son. Where is your brother Abel? And of course his arrogant. Uh, reply is, you know, I have no idea. He outright lies to God, of course, and 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 then says, "Is is uh, am I my brother's keeper?" Okay. And uh, and God, of course, doesn't take that for an answer, and then says, "Well, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground," and etc. And then God pronounces His punishment, and His punishment is that He will be a wanderer on the earth, a wanderer and a vagrant on the earth and that the ground will no longer yield its strength to him. Okay, this is a guy who's a farmer and uh, is presumably a pretty good one. I think probably a fairly successful farmer. Okay, uh, But at this point, God tells him, okay, from now on, as a farmer, you're going to be a failure. <laughs> and the result of that is that you're going to be out, you're just going to kind of be wandering around the earth. Okay, And... And Cain protests at this point that his punishment is too great for him. And there are, there are three things that Cain specifically complains about. What are those three things about this punishment that he's receiving? Okay. Okay. Uh, it's, the punishment is more than he can bear. That's, yeah, uh, that's kind of the overarching thing. And then there's three specific reasons why it's too much for him to bear. And the first one was, as you said, driving him from the land. The idea that he's no longer going to be able to successfully cultivate the ground. Okay, that's the first. What's the second? Okay, he's going to be driven from the presence of the Lord or from the face of God. He's no longer going to be able to see the face of God. We'll talk about that in a second. And then the third thing is what? Okay, well, that's uh, 
that's not his complaint per se. Somebody's going to kill me. <laughs> Somebody's going to be after me, okay? Now, the assumption here, of course, is, and we know from Genesis chapter 5, as we'll see next week, that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, okay? Uh, so, at this point in the story, of course, by now, Cain and Abel are, are, are adults. Uh, presumably, Cain is by this time married, and I'll address that question in just a second. But, so there are other people on the earth at this point, and Cain uh, imagines that some of these people, being, uh, being Adam and Eve's uh, sons and daughters, are going to be quite upset with Cain for what he's done, and are going to want to kill him. So he's afraid that somebody's going to find him and kill him. Okay, so he has three complaints, but I want to call your attention to that second complaint. First, he complains about the ground and not being able to cultivate the ground. But his second complaint is, "I will be your face from your face. I will be hidden." Okay. And what God is saying is, is you're going to be a wanderer and a vagrant. You're, basically, I'm driving you out from this place. You're no longer going to be able to hang around here with your family with your parents and with your siblings, etc. Uh, but you're going to have to leave. And implied in that leaving to Cain is the awareness that he will be driven from the presence of God. Okay. Now, that raises an interesting issue to us. Because we know that when Adam and Eve were in the garden... One of the things they, one of the privileges they got to experience in the garden was what? Pardon? Fellowship with God, the presence of God. Okay, but after the fall, they are driven from the garden, and 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 what does God do as He drives them from the garden? He puts a guard, and what are they? Okay, specifically, cherubim. Okay. Uh, they're angels, they're cherubim, and there are two of them placed there uh, to guard the entrance and there's this flaming sword, okay? Now, if you were Adam and Eve and you had known the presence of God in the garden and you've now fallen and sinned but you've heard the promise of grace and all that sort of thing, but God says you can't be in the garden because the tree of life is there and, and so God drives them from the garden, where would you go? Exactly. And build a house right next door. And I expect that that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They just got as far away from the garden as they had to get to be safe. And several commentators suggest, and I think there's some merit to this, that when they wanted to worship God, when they wanted to talk to God, that they would go back to the entrance to the garden where the cherubim were. Now, you remember that when, we, when you get to the book of Exodus and you get to the establishment of the whole Levitical system and everything, where does God dwell? Above the cherubim. <laughs> Above the cherubim. Okay? And so, possibly... It seems pretty clear to me, uh, and, and I hope I'm not overreading the text here, but it seems pretty clear to me that we still have present here with the first family, the real first family, <laughs> with this first family, we still have present here the Shekinah glory in some way. Such that when Cain wants to present an offering to God or when Abel wants to present an offering to God, they bring it to God and, and they are able, 
through the presentation of their offerings somehow to detect God's response to their offering. Okay? So I'm, what I'm suggesting, and I wouldn't be dogmatic about this, but what I'm suggesting is that, that there was some, still some remnant of the Shekinah glory, of the presence of God, perhaps a theophany or a Christophany, something that was there that they would go to and they would be very keenly aware that they were in the presence of God. And that is, the, that is one of the things that now strikes fear into the heart of Cain is that he realizes he's no longer going to have access to the Shekinah glory. He's no longer going to have access to the face of God. He calls it the face of God. Some translators translate the presence of God. And those words are, uh, it's the same word there. They can be translated either way. But the idea is there's going to be a loss of the presence of God in his life. And he is going to be driven out and he is ultimately then we see is driven out to the land of Nod. And it says he settled in the land of Nod. Okay. Well, the word Nod there, the name Nod, has the idea or the sense of going to and fro or wandering or grieving. So, Cain is driven out from the presence of God and he is driven out into a land of wandering and grieving and going to and fro. And it says there he settles. Okay, now we ask, you know, immediately the question pops in our mind, wait a minute, <laughs> I thought you were going to be a wanderer. What are you doing settling? Well, uh, we'll think about that here in just a second. But what I want you to contemplate is that in the life of Cain, as I said before, where he ended is not where he started. Where he started was having access to the presence of God and he comes into that presence of God superficially, lackadaisically, and without faith. And that is his first offense. And from there, his life goes downhill until ultimately he murders his brother. And because of the callousness of his heart, because of his refusal to master the sin which is crouching at the door, because of his refusal to do that, he is driven out from the presence of God to settle in a land of wandering. Okay. Now, I would suggest to you when it says he settled in the land of wandering or in the land of Nod, that the idea isn't there necessarily that, that he just moved from point A to point B and just settled there, but that the land of Nod became the place that defined his life. I think he probably still wandered around some. We do know he built a city uh, uh, such as it was, uh, but uh, I assume he did that for his descendants, but pretty much he is a wanderer and the land of Nod characterizes his life. And when I think about that, I just think about the application of that uh, the parallel to that in, in, in our own lives that, of course, we know that as believers we have God's Spirit in us and we have His presence with us. And we remember, too, the words of the psalmist when he says, where can I flee from your presence? Because we know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And, and, and so, in, 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 in very clear sense, for us as believers, we can never be out of the presence of God. But there is another sense in which we can be driven from his face, I think. There is another sense which in our lives, if we repeatedly compromise, we repeatedly give in to the 
promptings of promptings of sin in our life and and we make little compromises and it may be something which seems so minor as just being superficial in our approach to God or lackadaisical or careless in our worship or our seeking of the Lord. But eventually other sins begin to creep in and other things begin to take over our lives. And, and, and pretty soon those, those things begin to, begin to erode our walk and our fellowship with God and eventually we find that we're in a land of wandering. And of course... When that happens, and there's all kinds of parallels in the Scripture we could go to, I think of passages in the Psalms and stuff. When that happens, obviously what God desires is that we would acknowledge our predicament, acknowledge our sin, repent, come back to Him in faith, and and have that fellowship restored. But you know as well as I do, and I don't know if this is going on in your life, if it has gone on in your life, or if it is now, but you certainly know of people, know of Christians who have just compromised, starting with little compromises and they've gotten a little bigger and a little bigger and they've gotten away from the Lord. They've kind of gotten away from the face of God and now they've settled there. They've kind of gone, well, you know, there's no way back. There's no way back. And, And the tragedy for Christian... The tragedy is when, when we let the compromises with sin so impact our fellowship and our relationship with God that eventually we become distant from Him and we may still go through all the same routines and exercises. We may get up in the morning and read our Bibles. We may go to church and, and we may pay our tithes and offerings and we may go through all the outward manifestations, but we really know that in our heart we are not experiencing the real abiding presence of God in our life. And the tragedy comes when we go, I guess it's always going to be that way. And we settle in the land of Nod. And that's what Cain did. Now, I don't know. Cain is clearly an unbeliever. Uh, John in 1 John 3 says he was, of the, he was of his father the devil or says he was of the devil. Uh, so we know he's of the unrighteous seed. I don't know if he was at a point where repentance was even an option to him at this point. But if you are a believer, if you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're still alive, repentance is an option. And you can come out of the land of not. And you can come back. You may not be able to get into Eden, but you can come back to the cherubim. And you can come back to the Shekinah glory. And you can enjoy that intimacy and that fellowship with Christ that you have known in the past. Well, then we get into the uh, the story, the genealogy of Cain. Okay. Now, uh, genealogies are an interesting thing in the Bible. Uh, they're the kind of thing that we as uh, Christians, oftentimes when we get to them, we just scurry right through them because we have no clue why they're in there, right? <laughs> okay, well, there's a reason why the genealogy is there. And it actually varies from one genealogy to another. But I just want to explain a couple things about genealogies and then take a look at this one and, and the point of the lesson that, that I think the Lord wants us to draw from this particular genealogy. There are several types of genealogies in Scripture. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, 
kinds that I think stick out or are most important is there's a, a genealogy that's called a broad genealogy, and then there's a genealogy that's called a, a deep genealogy. Okay, and a broad genealogy basically is one generation. So, for example, if I were to give you uh, my genealogy uh, or the genealogy of my family, I would say, well, there was Rick and then there was Gabriel and Teresa and, and Benjamin and Christina and Petrina. And I would stop there. So I have given you uh, the, all my uh, first generation descendants. Okay. And that's a broad genealogy. Then you have a deep genealogy, which implies what? This thing's kind of weak. Pardon? Okay, uh, the idea is it goes deeper, right? Okay, so, uh, well, yeah, I do have another one here. Okay, Sw pardon the switch of color here. Okay, with deep genealogy, you have, you have two kinds. You have uh, the linear uh, and you have the segmented. Okay. And a linear genealogy is just a straight line, okay? So-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so, okay? It's just a straight line. It may or may not, the names in the line may or may not be the firstborn, okay? So, for example, I could give you a linear deep genealogy of my family and say that a number of years ago in Indiana there was a guy by the name of Fred Harvey and, uh, and he had a son uh, and he named his son Fred, and that Fred had a son, and he named his son Rick, and that that uh, Rick had a son, and he named his son Benjamin. Okay, that's a linear genealogy, and you'll notice that that when you got to my part, I just mentioned my son, I didn't mention my daughters, I didn't mention for my father that he also had two other sons. I happened to mention in the genealogy I just gave you the youngest son. Okay, the reason was I had a purpose. And the genealogy I just gave you to illustrate what I was wanting to illustrate precluded the firstborn and the secondborn sons of my father and included only me. Okay? So a, a, a linear genealogy is just a straight list of names. Okay? Now, a segmented genealogy, remember it's going deep, a segmented genealogy gives you more than one name, usually all the names or most of the names or at least the important names of any person, any given person, and then explores all the other names under those names, okay? So you get the idea of a family tree type of thing, okay? So you have these various kinds of genealogies, okay? Now, if you look at the genealogy which begins in, uh, in chapter 4 and it begins uh, in... Uh, uh, in verse 17 and goes down through verse 24. If you look at that genealogy, how would you classify that genealogy? Pardon? Okay, it's linear. Until you get to Lamech, then what does it become? Okay, it becomes segmented. So it starts out as linear, and at the end it becomes segmented. And oftentimes you'll see in the genealogies and scriptures that, that what's, that that's what happens. It starts out as linear, and then you get down to the end, and it becomes segmented. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why does the Holy Spirit record this genealogy like this? 
You know, you might be asking, why does he even bother with these genealogies? I've always skipped over them. Okay, well, it's because he has a point he wants to make. This is the genealogy of whom? It's the genealogy of Cain. What do we know about Cain? Okay. Okay. What else? He couldn't farm anymore. Okay. He had attitude problems. He had sin problems, which gets to the real core that, as we said last week, Cain was the unrighteous seed. Cain was the unrighteous line. Okay? And John makes that very clear in 1 John 3 when he says he was of the devil. Okay? So we know that, 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 that Cain represents the unrighteous line. And as we said in our introduction to Genesis, we're going to be throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to be following the righteous line because it's through the righteous line that the promise of a Savior, of a Messiah is given. So the purpose of Genesis is to follow the righteous line. But as we're following down this righteous line throughout the book of Genesis, as I mentioned in our introduction, we are going to stop at times and look down the side roads. We're going to look down the genealogies of some of the unrighteous seed. And that's what we're doing here in chapter 4. This is our first pause. In fact, the righteous line has been terminated because Abel has been killed. But we're going to take a pause and we're going to look down this side branch, if you will, we're going to look down this one branch of the unrighteous line, the line of Cain. And he lists for us, he goes deep, he goes seven generations deep, beginning with Adam. He goes Adam, and then he goes Cain, Erod, and, and these other guys, and then he finally he comes to Lamech. Okay. And when he gets to Lamech, as we said, the genealogy becomes segmented. It's because there's something about Lamech he wants us to understand. Now, one of the purposes of a deep genealogy, particularly of a linear genealogy, one of the purposes is to show a connection without the use of narrative. In other words, without going into a lot of explanation, like I just have about the unrighteous line, without going into all that, the author wants us to understand that there's a connection between Lamech and Cain. And that's why he gives this linear genealogy. But in addition to that, in order for us to understand about Lamech, he goes segmented with Lamech. And so with Lamech, we discover that the first thing we discover about Lamech is what? He had two wives. What does that tell you? Now, see, your problem is... Okay, he was willing to sin in the sin of bigamy or polygamy. He is, he is the first recorded polygamist. Okay. Uh, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that. Uh, but he is, he is, we discover, a guy who is willing to compromise on the law of God for the sake of his own lust. Okay. And he is a polygamist. Okay. Or bigamist, is technically. Okay. Okay. Uh, what else do we learn then? After we learn that he's taken two wives, what else do we learn? Now, before you get there, you're jumping ahead, people. I know you want to get to the murdering part, but we got to one step at a time. <laughs> you people are bloodthirsty. Pardon? He has children, okay? And who are these children? Well, there could be. I wonder if any commentators would make a comment on this. There could be 
could be some real difficult implications of what is revealed here. As it says of his son, one of his sons is the father of all who dwell in tents and have livestock and other sons. One commentator said he's the father of musical, you know, musical right. And then the other third son he mentions was the one who worked with bronze. Right. So if you take my implication, this is the unrighteous line, someone might conclude, well, these things from the unrighteous line are all unrighteous. Yeah, but you're getting ahead of me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting ahead of me. Okay. First of all, let's establish he had he had four at least four descendants. There may be others that weren't mentioned, okay? But he has at least four descendants through these two wives, okay? He has Jabal, he has Jubal, he has Tubal Cain, and he has the do- his, his daughter Nama, okay? That's a good question. Or Tubal-Cain. I think I'll name my next son Tubal-Cain, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, but what is significant about these guys, as Jim pointed out, is that these guys, actually, the thing that's outstanding about their lives is that they are beginning to take dominion of the earth, Right? Is that what they're doing? Okay, one guy, he's, he's the father of all those. So apparently this guy has, 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 has gotten this thing about being a nomadic rancher down to a science. And he's trained his kids and, it's, and, and he's really the one we consider to be the father of, of nomadic ranching. Okay, he's the guy who lives in tents. They're the guy, people who live in tents and, and, uh, and have livestock. Okay, and then the second son by the first wife, Ada, uh, is Jubal. And and this guy, he's 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 the fine arts guy, okay? He's the guy who's got this whole arts, music, poetry thing. He's got it down. He's got this down to a science. He's trained his kids, and he's kind of the father of of the OU School of Fine Arts, <laughs> okay? Uh, and then you have and then you have the third son uh, by the sec- first one by the second wife. Tubal Cain, and he's the guy that he he's learned how to make stuff with iron and bronze, and and uh, you know this is back during the bronze iron age, et cetera, et cetera, and he's learned how to make implements and presumably weapons, and uh, and tools for farming and all that sort of thing. So, what these guys are doing is they're just fulfilling the biblical mandate to subdue the earth and take dominion of it, right? There's nothing wrong with what these guys have done. Okay, they're doing a really good thing. But what is interesting here is that in this whole genealogy, there's no mention of God. There's no spiritual dimension to what's going on. It's all just these guys, they're, they're doing what we all just do instinctively, is make our environments better and more comfortable for us, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we've been mandated to do that. Okay? And that's what they're doing. Okay? And that's what they're known for. And then there's Nama, or Nama, however you want to pronounce her name. And her name just means beautiful. Which is interesting what Ada's name means. Lamech's first wife. And his second wife, Zilla, her name kind of means tinkling. Okay? You know, tinkling. Okay. Uh, And you begin to get this picture that in Lamech's household, everything is superficial. Everything's just kind of about what makes me comfortable and what's pretty and what's material and you know and that's the picture we get. Now, you may think I'm being a little hard on Lamech, but then we get to Lamech's 
song. Okay, and you notice probably in your Bible it's in the form of poetry. Okay, and the reason is it's because it, it, it's at least in the text here it's a song, and I don't know if it was originally uh, when he first expressed it a song, but I kind of think given the way it's it's wedged into the text here, I think it was. I think this is a I think this is a poem or a song he used to like to say. And he'd say to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, there's a couple different ways to look at this, and one of them I really don't think is very credible, so I'm going to focus on the one I think is credible. This is a boast. That what Lamech is doing here is he's boasting to his wives about the fact that Either one or two guys have crossed his path. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Okay? And, I, I, and, and, and it could be that's just two ways of saying the same thing, that the, the one who wounded him was a young man. Okay? Or it could be that what he's saying is, I've killed two people. I've killed a, a man for wounding me and I killed a young boy for striking me. Okay? Whichever the case, it is, it is apparently a boast. And it's either a boast about something he has already done or it's a boast about something he intends to do, or it's a boast about something he threatens to do if anybody crosses his path. Okay? And commentators kind of are all over the map on that. But, because the Hebrew can actually be translated a couple different ways there. But the idea is, however, whether it's something that's already happened or something that might happen or that he's threatening to do, whatever the case may be, he's clearly boasting. And we discover something about Lamech, which is what? Pardon? He's proud. He's proud and he's malevolent. He's angry. He's angry and he's he's violent. He's a violent, angry, arrogant man. And he's tyrannical. Why do I say he's tyrannical? Well, if in fact this is a poem or a song that he likes to sing, to whom does he sing it? To his wives. If you were the wife of a man like this, would you like to hear this song sung to you? That's scary, isn't it? It is absolutely terrifying. So the guy is tyrannical, he's arrogant, he's proud, he's violent. Now you say, now Rick, you're reading an awful lot into this genealogy here. I want you to remember that this is three recorded generations from the destruction of the earth in the flood. So we're getting pretty close to the flood here. I have no doubt that not only is Lamech this way, but the whole family line is this way. And the point of this genealogy, why why does God put this genealogy in here, is to show where Cain's sin led. And to show that he is, in fact, the unrighteous line. And that the unrighteous line, when it's allowed to just go and do whatever it wants to do, eventually this is where it's going to lead. We're going to start with Cain, who is this, who is this violent, angry man. And it goes on down through his descendants and we get to Lamech. And what do we have? We have this violent, angry, tyrannical, bitter man. Now, admittedly, with his descendants, there's a lot of good that's being done. 
Music's being learned. You learn how to play music and invent instruments and invent uh, uh, musical instruments and invent instruments of, for work and war and all that sort of thing. And there's learning to raise livestock and all this sort of thing. So there's a lot good going, good going on. But in the midst of all that good is all this evil. Now quickly, in ch- verse 25, we come back to Adam and Eve. So now we just jump back six generations. <laughs> okay, so... You know, whiplash here. But now we're back with Adam and Eve. Why? Because the last time we were with Adam and Eve, we saw the termination of the righteous line. And I can't help but ask myself, what were Adam and Eve thinking at this point? At the point when Cain murders their son Abel, think of what this family has lost. They have lost Cain, who is the righteous son, who's been murdered. Excuse me, Abel. They have lost Abel, who is the righteous son, who has been murdered. They have lost Cain. They lost him spiritually to begin with, and now they've actually lost him. He's gone wandering. But who did Cain take with him? Well, at least a wife. He took his wife, who was whom? A daughter of Adam and Eve, right? So he takes, he takes not, on, not only have they lost Abel, they have lost Cain, and they have lost a daughter who is Cain's wife. Okay? So they have lost three children in this scenario. And I cannot help but think that in their minds, they're thinking back to that moment at the tree in the garden. Had we only not eaten of the fruit of the tree. And even though they know the grace of God and they know that God has promised a Redeemer, even though they know that, how their hearts must have pained to see how their sin has impacted the lives of their children. And in Adam and Eve, we see the agony of parents from that moment all the way down through human history, don't we? that we all look at our children and we go, man, the consequences of my sin, the consequences of my choices in the life of my children. Well, the story doesn't stop there, though, because it says that Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son. And she named him Seth because she said that uh, how does she say it? That God, uh, uh, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel. And so even though at one point Adam and Eve may have gone, man, we really blew this. And we blew it so bad that we've seen the righteous line snuffed out. And I, you know, I can't help but wonder if Adam and Eve didn't think, I wonder if the promise has been abrogated. I wonder if the promise of the righteous seed has been snuffed out because their son's been killed. I, I don't know if they thought that, but that, that certainly, given knowing human nature, that's certainly a thought that would have crossed my mind. But now they have a son named Seth. And Eve recognizes this is from God. And this is the replacement. And so what we see now with Seth is that God has reestablished the righteous line. 
And that righteous line will continue from Seth and will continue down from generation to generation to generation to generation until we get to the Messiah. Now, I don't want to imply by that that everyone in the righteous line was righteous. Don't make that mistake. We're going to see some in the righteous line who were not. Terror is an example. Okay? We're going to see some in the righteous line who were not righteous, who didn't worship God. Okay? But there is this righteous line, and through this righteous line, ultimately the promised Savior comes. And that promise starts with Seth. And Seth has a son. And what is the result of Seth and uh, Seth and Enish, his son's life. What's the result? Men begin to call upon the name of God. Now, we could explore that a lot and we really don't know for sure what all that means, but I think there are some things that are clear. We don't know who the men were who began to call upon the name of the Lord. We don't know how many men there were who began to call upon the name of the Lord. But it is one thing is clear. There are some men calling on the name of the Lord at this point who were not before. Right? Because it says, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So one of the things we know is that as a result of Seth and his son Enish, as a result of their coming into the world, of their lives, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And as I contemplate that and I think about that and then I contrast this, what it says about Seth and his descendants to what it says about Lamech and his descendants. You know, Lamech and his descendants, well, there's this guy and he's, you know, he's the father of all those who dwelled in tents and you know, had cattle and then there's this other guy and he, you know, he got music going and, and he got the flute and the lyre and all that sort of thing going and, and all the fine arts and then there's a the guy who got the whole thing with you know, forging metal and making all, this, all these glorious, wonderful things that make our world so modern and so technological and so wonderful. And they've done all this stuff. But of the sons of Seth, the, the impact of their life is that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And as I said, there's nothing wrong with what the sons of Enoch were doing, or sons of Lamech were doing. There's nothing wrong with what they were doing. It was good. It was part of the mandate. But as I contemplated this yesterday, as I thought about this yesterday, I thought, what do I want to be known for? You know, on my gravestone, what do I want? Do I want it written? He was a great house painter. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a house painter. That's what God's called me to do. And that's what He has me doing. Okay? And I want to do it the best I can and I want to do it to His glory, but that's not what I want on my gravestone. On my gravestone, I want it written. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that brings us to the conclusion of the first Holodoc of Genesis. Okay? Next week we'll pick it up in 5.1.